Greetings from the Disruptor Series Vault. My name is Rob Schwartz, and today we bring you a discussion we had with chef and author Gabrielle Hamilton. We spoke with Gabrielle live at the agency a few years ago. Recently, one of the victims of the deadly COVID-19 coronavirus was her popular and wonderful restaurant, Prune. Gabrielle was forced to shut it down during the lockdown. In this conversation, we talk about the disruptive nature of Prune, her book, and a whole lot more on this Disruptor Series Classic. Without further ado, I'm going to introduce Gabriel Hamilton and our CEO, Rob Schwartz. Wow, look at this, full house. Hey, listen, we're thrilled to have you. So, um, Thanks for having me. You know, chef, author, restaurateur, and um, I would say rock star, because when we mentioned that you were going to be here, everybody was like, ooh, Gabriel Hamilton. I was like... It was a little bit like, you know, Patti Smith or, uh, you know, Chrissy Hine from The Pretenders was showing up, so. I can uh. sing. <laughs> and uh, this book is amazing. To me, you know, it's a journey. It's a beautiful journey. It was a little bit like uh, kind of Huck Finn with burrata cheese. I got that <laughs> sort of journey. As a disruptor, I just want to point out some of the conventions of your world, right? So you've got, you know, these Bobby Flays and... Mario Battaglia's of the world, and... Um, the conventions of the chef industry, the mm-hmm. restaurant industry. Yeah, the, like mm-hmm. Chef Inc. So it's, uh, you know, multiple restaurants, and like, I mean, like a lot of restaurants, and like your sauce in the, you know, in the Cristides, and, uh, you know, you've got uh, maybe your pots and pans named after you, so I think everyone would love to hear about your empire. My nonprofit empire? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Right. I mean, I think that is a path, and um, if I were more avaricious, I would go for it. But it doesn't really move me. I mean, I'm, I would like to make a living, <laughs> for sure. Um, but I don't want a line of cookware. It's not what brought me into the industry. I have a pretty good Bloody Mary mix that I would be happy to package and sell at Trader Joe. If anyone here wants to send me a like, good-looking label later. Um, <laughs> this is the place for that. <laughs> But in fact, that has only occurred to me now as my children start to need some space and room Mm. to live in and maybe a private education for one of them who's not doing so well in public school, Mm. who's a little bright and is kind of bored out of his gourd. So I'm just saying, you don't go into the restaurant business for money. There are many more expeditious ways to make money and so you're generally not advertising either anymore by the way is that true yeah, it's not working. or apparently doctoring like apparently that's out the window too so i don't know what's left sex work or um i should write memoirs that works a little bit i mean i've taken on a second job of book writing which is the one i always want anyway i'm just saying i'm not very motivated by um having a lot of money so i just didn't need the cookware line or right. um the competitive television, that's also not very fun for me. It's not what drew me to my work, if I was ever even drawn to my work. Yeah, well, I think what's interesting is, um, in fact, a few of us went to your restaurant. Uh, who's been to Prune, by the way? Yeah, I mean, it's, and it's really magnificent. And it's, you know, what's amazing is it's 30 seats. Mm. And uh, I went on the Internet and I typed in, what's the average seating of the Olive Garden? And it's like 300 seats. Mm. So maybe talk a little bit about why you were comfortable just having a 30-seat restaurant. Well, I never wanted to be in the restaurant business in the first place. I grew up in it. I came to the restaurant industry in a kind of crisis or emergency. I was the youngest child of a family that divorced and imploded very suddenly and quickly. And Mm. I found myself as a kind of... 12, 13-year-old alone in a home with no money and no parents and frankly not concerned with food so much but very concerned with how I was going to wash my hair with Mm. no shampoo. And so I understood that I had to have money right away. These are normal preoccupations for a teen or a Mm. preteen or an adolescent. And I was like, I want the Farrah Fawcett shampoo, I don't have any money. (laughs) But I definitely know how to wash dishes and I know how to peel onions, things that I had been taught in my home before the home exploded or imploded. And so I went right into town Mm. and got my first job in a restaurant washing dishes. The restaurant that I ended up opening was manageable enough, required just the equivalent of money that I had spent on my 
higher education. Mm -hmm. And I thought, okay, they want 50 grand from me for sort of serious money, and I am that deep in debt in student loan, and I learned so much there in right. a liberal arts education and also a graduate education. And I was like, what's there to lose here? And I thought, if anything, I might gain some increased quality of living from the freelancing crap that I was doing before. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm going to pick up a job here and a job there, and I'm going to sit on the couch for the rest of the week. So it was a 30-seat restaurant that came into my fake leather lap. It just, like, <laughs> landed there, and it was the right size. It felt manageable. I knew that it was a nonprofit situation. Mm. But I also knew that you can, everyone knows if you're in the restaurant industry, 30 seats is not the thing. You need 65. Well, I, I read this other fact, too, that 80% of restaurants fail in the first year. Yes. And, and how long has your restaurant been I think that I think that's a, um, a little bit of an urban myth, but what is a, a truer statistic is that 80% go out of business or change hands or mm. change concepts in the first five years. And Prune is now, in fact, 16 today. It's Whoa, our, I love that. It's our, um, and I think... In, you know, New York City restaurant years, that's really like 99. It's like yeah. cat or dog years, whatever it is. But I think what's interesting, so you said 16 years, and those of you who have been to the restaurant know this. To me, it felt like really fresh. So how can you keep something fresh <laughs> that, you know, again, in restaurant years, 16 years, I mean, what? I mean, I know. how do you do that? Well, I made a commitment to it when I signed the lease, and it's a 30-year lease. It's a 20-year lease with two five-year renewables. And that kind of document, which is not a, um, at the time when I signed the document, I had never cut a check for more than, I don't know, $1,500 in my life, or um, looked at such a legalese document with 18 or 30 pages and a rider. And I was just like, yeah, you gotta get I think I should that. probably take this seriously. <laughs> and if I'm going to do it, I'm going to really do it. So I treated it a lot like I would a marriage. Mm. And I didn't feel like it was disposable or recyclable or renewable. I just thought, I'm going in here and I'm going to love it till the end. <laughs> and in fact, it's not a trendy restaurant. I work in the um, sort of classic idiom, which is evergreen. There is no, um, oh, we're doing seeds and quinoa this year. Oh, but now we're going over to butter and um, foie gras. And now we're going to go over to, right. I'm just like, hey, man, we roast the chicken. We braise the lamb shank. Um, this is evergreen and is not hard to love. I still yeah. love a Shakespeare sonnet, even if it's not a Kathy Acker book. Or it's, no, it's good. It's going to go on forever. <laughs> Well, I love this line that you said, which is, uh, prune isn't a restaurant, it's a feeling. So like, how would you describe that feeling? I think it's, again, we're, we're looking not only for inspiration for you know, the group here, but for our clients, oftentimes we, we tell them, hey, you've, you, know, mm. you have to sort of bring the world uh, your feeling or your experience. So I, I love that you called it not a restaurant, but a feeling. How would you describe that feeling? So funny. One of the things that was a pleasure for me in owning and operating a restaurant is that I had been an employee for many, many, many mm. years um, under um, pretty not-so-savory bosses or leaders. So one of the things that I wanted to do in the restaurant was to immediately eliminate certain repulsivenesses from the industry that I had experienced. The huge conflict between front and back. Mm. Frankly, the customer is always right. I am not a big fan of that one. Um, <laughs> only because the customer doesn't always know and just yeah. needs to be gently educated. In fact, also, I only know this now, 16 years later, but I didn't know it at the time. It turned out to be the wholesale recuperative experience of my own lost childhood and the family that I had loved so much that I was so it's like, wait. Therapy. This, wasn't a, this wasn't a business, this is therapy. Well, but I'm kind of <laughs> tight and hard. <laughs> okay. So I often say, in fact, frequently say like, hey, we use the word family here, but not too loosely. And can you button up on the family thing? Because actually this is a job and we're running a business. <laughs> but for me, it was to put in place a structure where there's a meal every day at five o'clock available to the staff and your mm. paycheck is always going to go through. It will never be bounced. And the equipment always works. You are going to come home late 
at 2 o'clock in the morning and you're 13 and someone is going to be standing at the door saying, mm, you are in trouble. Mm. And so when the employees show up late, I'm like, you're late and you should shave. So <laughs> it's that kind of recuperative. Yeah, yeah. What I wished had happened to me, I am doling out there. That's and good. So those <laughs> of us who've had you know, messed up childhoods, yeah, like, you can bring your whole I can't psychotic. imagine. <laughs> it seems like uh, the inspiration for a business plan. No, uh, I know. I don't know why you invited me here. I'm it's perfect. No, it's perfect. No, because I think what's very interesting is what you described. There's a fancy pants term for this called uh, the service profit chain. And what that really means is that if, you, if the employees are happy, it emanates throughout a business. And that's, again, in our experience when uh, Doug, uh, Walt, and I went to the restaurant, uh, the staff could not have been happier. They, they, they could not have done enough for us. And it wasn't like they knew that you know, we were you know, doing a little market research. Yeah. No, I think that's um, my least favorite management style in restaurant life is where you, I mean, for both people, frankly, you see the kind of beleaguered manager in the suit wearing very different clothing than the actual workers are wearing, mm. sitting at the bar, having the veal scampi and the wine <laughs> and making the schedule. And everyone else is working and breaking down the espresso station. But he's got the big ring of keys. Mm. And it's like somehow this dude has been conned into thinking that the veal scampi is part of his compensation <laughs> and that that's pay. And these people are like, I want to wear the suit and sit at the bar, and I can't bear it. It's not um, a very good management style for me. Look at me, I'm doing this all the time. Like, <laughs> this is going to be the, the um, disruptor series of new. <laughs> no, no, it's good, because we have, to, we have to help people understand what they, what they should do and what they shouldn't. Well, now, I would like them to, to be well. I'm, yeah. um, I want them to take care of you, and mm. therefore, I'm going to find out what I can do to take care of them. Are you paid? Do you know what the expectations are? Um, yeah. Are you clear? Do you have feedback on your work? It's mm, good. Are you proud of the product we're slopping around here? Yeah, yeah. It's good learning. It's going to go into the off-white paper. Now, the other interesting thing is that the restaurants in the East Village, and you, 16 years ago, the East Village of then is not the East Village of today. And I'm sure you know the fancy pants wine term terroir, like the... You know, the, 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 way the, the way the land uh, affects the way of the grape, which affects the way of the wine. Is that sort of fair on terroir? I Googled that, too. I, I was just curious. Is there, like, a East Village terroir that influences your brand, your restaurant, I should say? It's such a great question that I have only become aware of recently. I think maybe with this Mind of a Chef series where you have to really think about and articulate why you are who you are. Mm. And I cannot count the times that the actual physical space that I inhabit influences the work that I can or cannot do. Mm. And creativity, for me, thrives in the confine. And I actually come to a screeching, stuttering halt if I have the whole world available to mm. me. And it's like, Baby, you can have a 2,000-square-foot <laughs> kitchen, and you can have your own walk-in just dedicated to garbage. And so that is not <laughs> the space I inherited. I got a very small 110-year-old East Village tenement building basement location and um, kind of spoke to me. <laughs> and um, it dictated to me what must happen in the space. Yeah. It was not the place, not only the building itself, but the East Village, which I have inhabited since I'm um, uh, maybe 16, 17, when I got my first apartment on like East 4th Street. Right. So I was one of those street kid people right. who was like, who are you on your cell phone? <laughs> you know, of course now I have three. Or, um, oh, who are these people arriving now by limousine to my neighborhood, yeah. um, drinking $16 martinis and, Martinis are still $12 a <laughs> but um, well, they might be 14 with like Belvedere or something. I don't know. I don't know. I gotta find out. But you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. I yeah. am the village. I am the East Village. Right. So I wasn't about to open a place so sort of grotesquely against the mm. terroir, if you will. But I'm also not a um, vegan falafel kind of girl. So right. I had to open the restaurant commensurate with the cooking that I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. I do want to tell you one story about this because yeah, I think please. it's so interesting. Yeah, yeah. I was through a short staffed labor period. I was hosting brunch recently in the past six months 
and it's a Sunday morning, and it's a classic East Village scene. And I'm on the sidewalk, and the line is huge, and the car in front of Prune pulls away from the curb, and in the gutter is a rat like this. <laughs> and there's liquid sludge and a few liquor bottles and maybe a used condom or I don't know what. <laughs> and there's like a 24-year-old white girl on the bench waiting for brunch who turns to me and says, you know, you should really clean that up. Oh. And I was like, oh my god, I think you live in Avalon Towers and have a Mini Cooper and a purebred dog, and I'm not going to make the East Village palatable for you, god damn it! Yeah, I would have said to... I would have said, listen, you're fucking with the terroir. That rat is terroir. Oh my god. All right, well, we, we love that. So, now, originally, you're from... Uh, I'm seeing my friend Chad there, our integrated producer. What, what town are you from, Chad? Oh! Let's oh, give it up for New Hope. Oh! Because we're, uh, we want to segue into the book a little bit now. Yeah. Now, the book, again, I love this title, Blood, Bones, and Butter. I, when I saw the title, I, I, first I thought it was like a new ACDC album. I mean, this is not, this is a Like this a is manual a tough, for satanic ritual. Yeah. Is, so tell us about the title. Well. Because there's good stuff once you get past that, too. Yes. It gets very deep and... It's very easy at the same time. <laughs> there was a cookbook in our kitchen growing up for my whole life called Love, Time, and Butter by a guy named Joe Hyde from Nyack, New York, mm. which is no one knows, and it wasn't a very good cookbook, but it doesn't matter. And no applause for Nyack. Right. I mean, New Hope, <laughs> big ups for New Hope, but Nyack. But still, I was like, oh, Love, Time, and Butter. That's so <laughs> clever. So it was a kind of fixture of my early childhood. Blood refers to, first of all, blood, bones, and butter are physical, actual things that I handle every day mm. in my line of work. You always have it on your apron, you butchered a chicken or some meat, and there's blood, and there's butter, and you're it's handling just like bones. advertising. <laughs> blood, bones, butter, come on. I mean, I'm going to clean your fingernails with a skewer in a minute. Um, Sorry. And what it means to me, this is a memoir. Um, it's, a, it's a little bit of a coming age story. So blood refers to clan and family mm. and bloodline and bones is about making one's bones and becoming mm. a chef as well as um, maybe a few bones to pick here and there, <laughs> a few arguments to win. And butter refers to the kind of sweet, creamy dividend of all of it. Mm. So that's what I was hoping to do. Wow. I wanted it to be that way, but I also am in advertising <laughs> and didn't want to end up in the remainder bin at the Strand. So I agreed to a subtitle, which is the inadvertent education of a reluctant chef. And I think between all of those things, you can tell it's not meant for Santeria, high priestessing. Yeah. Or <laughs> well, listen, it's, 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 it's a great narrative. And it, and it reads, I think, um, you know, your ability to uh, keep the reader uh, engaged, I mean, it's it's no different, like, like I said, the, uh, it reminded me really of like a Huck fan of a, even like a, a you know, a, a Jack London. It's a, it's a very uh, beautiful narrative. It has a, um, I think they call it a compulsion, like, mm. it, or propulsion, which I went to writing school, so. Yeah, yeah. Oh, we're going to cover that now. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so now, I think one of the first things you may have to explain to uh, the audience here is your uh, your attraction to butcher shops. Because it's, it's, again, it was wonderful, you know, as you start the book, you know, and I don't know how old, you seemed like you were quite young to... I was, I mean, I think anything you read about in the book um, comes from the years of five to ten, hmm. because those are the years that I can remember, <laughs> and that's when it ended. Yeah. So, um, I mean, when you're a baby, you're just kind of like a blob, right. but then you start to come to when you're five or around then and can actually retain some... Thing. So imagistically and, and sensorily, I can recall this local butcher shop that we went to frequently that my mother would take us to. I have a French mom, and she was a real adherent of, uh, we would go to the butcher and we would collect mushrooms in the woods um, on damp mornings, and we ate, you know, liver. <laughs> and um, so the butcher shop figures prominently in a routine way, but also it was the location where we had an annual party, a very spectacular lamb roast, 
my father, who's not French, a New Jersey Native American, <laughs> I mean Native. <laughs> of America. Of America. Um, a set designer for theatrical and industrial shows, threw a party every year that was um, really indelible. So memorable. Mm. So in the stream, in the backyard, with the meadow and the weeping willows, and he built the big pit, and the four lambs would roast over the coals, and he would build the big fire the night before, and the kids, we would all sleep by the fire the night before, and um, have that kind of smell of wood smoke just like in your nostrils, mm. and the sleeping bags were a military issue and just sodden in the morning. But anyway, that um, that butcher yeah. has a lot of um, freight yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um, <laughs> meaning for me. Well, I, again, I think from some of that idyllic stuff uh, in the beginning of the book, I, I was also quite struck because it's one of my favorite foods in life. When you come to New York, you know, you uh, you run away or, you know, you sort of... Uh, they ran away. Come on. They <laughs> ran away. They ran away. And uh, so you come to New York. You're out of 16, I think, mm -hmm. uh, in the East Village. And, you know, there's... You know, it's not the greatest neighborhood. You've got those, you know, your friends, you know, the, the prostitutes all around. and But the Greek guy has the egg on a roll, which I love because it, to me it's like one of those great iconic New York foods. And when you're not in New York and you explain, yeah, you know, you get an egg on a roll. I mean, that's one of the most vivid... You know passages in the book, and it's uh, to me what I, what I connected it to your restaurant today, which is it's kind of an iconic food. Oh yeah, I mean I think the restaurant at the restaurant I aim to and only serve food that means a lot to me or that I know very personally up hand up close mm. firsthand. I don't invent anything, mm. and I don't just throw it on because um, yeah we should have a thing or. It has to have a, a pretty strong resonance for me. So the egg on a roll, which I didn't know, I thought it's a New York City yeah, thing. Yeah. Uh, but when I moved here, I was uh, turning 16 years old, and I had this large jar of change that I was literally living from, mm. out of. And so I would count the change, and I could get an egg on a roll for you know 55 cents without cheese or 90 with <laughs> or a dollar 10 and then sometimes with a dollar 25 special you get that and the coffee mm. i mean it's kind of funny and i've now metabolized this it's so long ago but actually i was like G -g 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 -g, how am i gonna fucking eat <laughs> how am i gonna fucking eat which is i mean i'm not saying i was poor because obviously i was mm. educated yeah. and um, but it was like a scrappy time and um, for a long time. So that could often be the only meal of the day. And there was a very generous Greek deli owner downstairs. And he would often see me come in with my stack of dimes. And he would just be like, you know, and he would give me the egg on a roll. All right. Well, one thing I, to me, and I think it's, it's throughout, the, throughout the book, is this notion of hunger. And... Uh, when I put the book down, I really thought that you physically had a lot of hunger in the book, especially when you go to, she goes to Europe at, at, at one point with not a lot of money and no ATMs and, you know, a very brave trip that you took. And you were physically hungry. And there's something about the way that you've been operating that to me said you were metaphorically hungry. And maybe you can talk a little bit about the role of hunger in being a very creative person. <laughs> Discuss, please. <laughs> I just had an experience. I catered a nearly impossible wedding on the island of Nantucket. Mm. And um, it was, by all measures, rather beautiful, I have to say, by the <laughs> end. Um, but it was, we had very few staff, and I personally drove a 22 or four foot refrigerator truck from New York with. <laughs> rental equipment and um, the food in the back. And anyway, I'm just going to say that I killed it. And I'm not kidding. Like, <laughs> it was beautiful. The food was goddamn delicious. And um, it was, but it, what I want to say was also very beautiful behind the scenes where mm. no one would see. In the same way that when you finally pull that string on like the bag of dog food or charcoal and it just comes undone, you're like, <laughs> What designer did mm. this? It's so anonymous, but it's so beautiful in its efficiency mm. and it, its yeah. efficacy. 
Anyway, so there was a lot of that going on too. Like we're actually only three cooks and we're gonna cook for 200 people on an island in a garage with no water or you know, that kind of thing. But what I wanna say is a guy came up to me and said, I just don't know how you do it. And I was like, oh, let me tell you. You get two parents who don't acknowledge your existence (laughs) or recognize your talent or know that you even are alive and you're gonna spend your whole life like, hi, hi, can you see me? Can you see me? I'm really good, I'm really good. And you just go and go and go. I mean, it was a joke, but it's like, you know, a little deprivation or um, trauma to the child, I think goes a long way in your creativity. But it seems like you're you're trying to prove something. I'm you know, not anymore. I'm freaking almost fifty. But of well, you're course awesome. I have you're, you're, you've already done your thing but. for a long time. Of course, I've been like, can you see me? Can you see me? Am I good? Am I good? Can you see me? And now, having um, actually done some things that meet my own measure. Mm. I'm very quiet. I'm like, you can see me or not. I'm done. I'm, right, um, right. I'm good. I know what I'm producing is to the best of my ability. It's not for your yeah, yeah. Um, approval or consumption. I have my own level of standard. And hmm. so it's not so. Um, <laughs> right. But I think, you know, again, for our, for, you know, the people here and for our clients, like you need a little bit of a, a chip on your shoulder that you have to, you know, hey, we have to prove something here. You know, we're, you know, we're a small uh, agency at this point. I think we've got a lot to prove. Mm. So when I, when I see it, when I was reading the book, I thought, you know, there's something here. I mean, I don't know how you're going to translate that to your people, but um, maybe. They're smart. I mean. don't, don't figure that out. <laughs> so another quote that you said that I loved, I thought this was really brilliant, which was, uh, be careful what you get good at doing because you'll be doing it the rest of your life. Which I thought was really powerful. So the things that you're really good at, like, careful, because people are going to want to hire you for that, so you better want to do that. I want to make sure that that's accurately attributed. That was said to me by the late poet Joe Carson, who I had the opportunity to work with and meet when I was in my first year of my second attempt at college. And she was a Southern writer and... I was in the throes of, how are you gonna be a writer? Like, I need a job. Mm. And she has a story about how all the Southern women um, make the best potato salad or the best pie to bring to the church supper. And then you get caught in it. Mm. And forever you're gonna be obliged to make that fucking (laughs) potato salad. I, that's my one F-bomb of the time here. <laughs> you know what, you're, you're, you're okay here. <laughs> so that was at University of Michigan? No, that I, was, that was that at was Hampshire. Hampshire. Okay. I went to NYU and dropped out or fizzled out. I went to Hampshire and dropped out. I finished Hampshire. Then um, I did a master's at uh, the University of Michigan. That's where I went. So I was very curious. What was your favorite restaurant in Ann Arbor? This is just a personal, personal one for me and any other, any other Go Blue people out there. Well, I loved Knights. Do yeah. you remember the Steakhouse? No. Knights. It was um, right because I'm was, older than you, so I. No, I it's still there, baby. It's still there. It's because it's very um, gown. Ga- it's very town, not gown. Oh, okay. So I definitely I was a worker there. I had a job. I worked over on in, Main Street. No, way out, sorry, but it was just like, wow, this is a killer steakhouse with like Johnny Walker Black in, nice. the, in the big goblet and the banquet and the meat and um, I, everything else in Ann Arbor at the time had a kind of, which I think happens a lot regrettably in the Midwest, a kind of like, we want to be like the coast. Yeah, yeah. And yet there's such incredible ritual and routine of the Midwest itself. Yeah. Talk about just be who you are. Mm. It would be so great to just be who you are and not like, no, we're going to have a cigar bar now right. in Ann Arbor. You're like, oh, and but chocolate I did, martini? No. But I, I did feel that Zingerman's was sort of, you know, it took a deli concept and they, they are sort of their own thing. Oh, Zingerman's is absolutely their own thing and uh, a pinnacle of excellence okay, and thoroughness good. and I worked for them too. You did? Yeah. I made good. family meal at the bakehouse. All right. Excellent. Now what's also amazing about the book is as you read it, you know, I think you're a very visual writer. Not every writer can, you know, sort of paint these pictures and so I was reading that uh, they're going to make it into a movie. There's some talk about that. And I love this quote that uh, you said that uh, I guess Gwyneth Paltrow was going to play you. 
and you thought the better actor for the job was Robert Downey Jr. <laughs> Which I thought was great. So I don't know if you were kidding, but there's always truth in humor. So what could you tell us about Gwyneth versus Robert? <laughs> As you. I actually, um, I don't know anything about the movie um, actually being made. It has been optioned. It's now been optioned again. So I have been taught to believe it um, when you're walking out of the theater. Um, so we'll see what happens. I, you know, I actually think Gwyneth, if she does it, would be apt. She cooks. Mm. She raises yeah. children. She's kind of a real deal in her form. Mm. And I have no strong feeling either way, which I think is pretty healthy yeah. when you're about to have a movie made about your own self. Robert Downey Jr., you know, it's sort of like, that's the same path that I have, and he's so, um, or would like to have. I mean, you know, he, he, he had a, he had a hard life. I'd get like John Lovitz or somebody. <laughs> I mean, it'll get made or not. I don't really care. I wrote the book. I mean, it was a long conversation with my agent. I was, she was like, what do you have to lose? Good book, bad movie. Everybody walks out of the theater saying, oh, I like the book so much better. It's like, right, I wrote the book. Or right, right. good book, good movie. She's like, now you're sitting even prettier. So it doesn't... Um... Well, it, it's, it's an amazing story. So I, th I think it would be hard for even Hollywood to mess it up. I think it's, it's that good. So <laughs> let's, let's hope for that. All right, I've got some lightning round questions for you. What is with this? This is, this is Disruptor I, Series. I have to, from now on, Aaron, my assistant right here, send the memo before any appearance telling everyone how slow I am. And we're going to take this from lightning to... Well, Junebug round has that. <laughs> I, mean, I didn't know what a Junebug does. I know. How about like uh, molasses lightning round? Yeah, frozen molasses, but okay, let's frozen, go. Frozen, okay. Like, I feel like I need to lean forward. It's going to be fun. I'm going to slam the buzzer. Ready? Okay. <laughs> First question, molasses, lightning round. Coke or Pepsi? Coke. Okay. <laughs> oh. I feel like that creepy guy on the, uh, what's, the, what's the guy who asks the questions of all the actors? James Lipton? Starbucks or Pete's? Pete's. That's what you serve in the restaurant, right? We don't. Now we've changed to a fine roastery from Lambertville, New Jersey, my hometown. Mm. Lambertville, who's the, yeah. No one representing, okay. The Nyack I mean, of New, New Jersey. I mean, New Hope, Elville, we're like right. Ready for the next one? Yeah, yeah, okay, thank you. Cheerios or Raisin Bran? <laughs> huh, I'm pretty much Honey Nut Cheerio all the time now. Oh yeah, I, I love Honey Nut Cheerios too, that's good. That's the kids. Now this one, I think I know the answer, but I'm going to ask it to you anyway. Hershey's or Cadbury? Yeah, Hershey. Just Pennsylvania girl, so. Oh, I don't know. The toasted almond dark bar. Yeah, that's a good, good one. I'll take it. Uh, Beatles or Stones? Stones. Oh, okay, very good. Oh, my God. <laughs> I mean. All right, well, that, that's the lightning <laughs> round. Now I've got some, some, some final fun questions for you. Have you ever had a good meal on an airplane? Oh, I sure have. In Please fact, tell I'm us. developing an app <laughs> in my own mind <laughs> for um, airport and airplane ordering. And mm. I have such good advice to give everyone. It's my favorite. Talk about being creative within the confines. Yeah. Oh, set me loose in the airport and tell me what you need, and I'm going to take care of it for you, and I know just how to do it. That's really cool. We should like make a little film of that. That would be that would be a cool little film. Let's make the app. Don't you have like resources? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh. What are you sitting here? Come on, go make the app for her, will you? Jiminy <laughs> crickets. Yeah, we'll do like the uh, prune to go or something. It's like yeah. I'm in Buffalo, and there's a Starbucks, a vending machine, and um, a I don't know Kazuti's Lounge. It's and like a Cinnabon. To, it's I'm like, like okay, MacGyver. here's what you're going to do. You're going to get the hard-boiled egg from Starbucks. You're going to go over to Kazooties and borrow a packet of salt. And, anyway, anyway. I'm just, <laughs> I love and get that. the whiskey sour from, hmm. Anyway. <laughs> no, it's like food MacGyver. I like that. Uh, it's very cool. Because you're, it, it can get dangerous, right? You're, oh, yeah. You're running out of you know, gas. You're just like, I'm fucking starving. <laughs> and we're going to fight. And I need to eat. But there's nothing here but Cinnabon. And you're going to go out of your <laughs> mind. Good. Anyway. No, but what about on a plane? 
Yeah, no, but on the plane too. I could, when they're coming through and they're like yeah. pasta or chicken, I'm like, mm. you get the chicken yeah. for sure. <laughs> because I can tell you what's going to happen to the pasta, and then you're going to like take the roll, but you're going to get your partner to order the pasta so you can put. Anyway, I guess the whole. Yeah, thing. You know. <laughs> I love that. First class meal, no matter where you fly. I For love real? that. Excellent. All right, I've got another. another fly with me. I like it. Air, Air Gabrielle. Are you ready for another fun question? Yeah, yeah. Okay. This is fun. All right. So if you were the CEO of McDonald's, what would you do today? You become the CEO of McDonald's. I love that question. <laughs> That's such a freaking trick. Do I? <laughs> because the thing is, there's some very real earth politics involved mm. and those are undeniable and I'm behind them mm. but I want the fries like, <laughs> and I don't want I don't go to first of all I'm not going to McDonald's for an apple slice mm -hmm. I'm that's I'm getting my apple slice at my farmers market mm. and I'm going to McDonald's for the repulsiveness <laughs> of the fry or the yeah, yeah. Um, so that's a, that's a very interesting, I also don't think they can change their production system fast enough and they're gonna go down mm. hard. Are, yeah. are they a client? Yeah. Okay, so, okay. I mean, part the of The good news is, like, is the periscope is broken and uh... Like, stay true, stay Mickey D. But it's also very disgusting and predatory mm. and the poor families who are like, well, I have $5.15 mm. to feed my entire family with, and that is undeniable. So I'm, I get very conflicted there. Yeah. I, I just wish the $5.15 would also get you as quickly prepared deliciousness as cheaply without ruining the freaking earth or your body. Yeah. Anyway, I don't have any good advice, do no, I? No, no. kind of like, stay true to who you are, and they can go to Chipotle if they want. <laughs> Organic. I'm not sure this street is going to appreciate your McDonald's reign. Because, <laughs> you know, you're going to have Wall Street pressure too as CEO. Because they're they're the Wall Street's going to demand some profits. This is a hard question. And I'm a dishwasher. <laughs> <laughs> so, have it just in general, in your world, I mean, does fast food have any, can it exist in your world? Well, I don't think you know what my world is. Mm. I think that I am, um, I eat pretty sensually and mm. according to, so of course I grew up with the garden and the um, French mom and the mushrooms and mm. I eat the marrow bones and the arugula salad and um, I love all the innards and offals and, um, but man, I just walked by a Popeye's the other night and I was like, that smells so good. <laughs> and I popped in and got some Popeye's and I was like, kids, look what I did. <laughs> So I have a very pragmatic yeah. um, consumer. And in fact, as did my French mother. Like, mm. if you think back to 1970, whatever, mm. it was not, um, would you like the low fat horizon 2% organic milk in the milk aisle with the 50 different types of milk? She was like, mm, we're gonna, okay, there's some cans, peas or some orida frozen mm. whatever and we ate very well but it's ha again it's kind of like the airport what do you call it what did you call it um, uh, macgyver yeah the right you got a macgyver a little bit <laughs> well I, that's what i thought was interesting about your restaurant because I, you know i'm not a foodie i was telling these guys i'm more like a like a duty like you know i eat like you know pizza and hot dogs and all that stuff but when i went to prune, I was happy to not see stuff that wasn't, you know, had all the crazy names that I never understand. Like it was like yeah, it's very not precious. Real. It's not yeah. something that we are advertising. We do it, but quietly. And I, I actually am very suspicious at the crowing at the mm. when the menu is like, meet our farmer Bob and our. <laughs> I remember going for a drink at a local place that had only organic um, alcohol, mm. and it was it was. Um, full-fledged, like touted, PR'd mm. as organic. And I was sitting at the bar and I was just looking down, just casually in an idle moment. I was like, that's fucking ocean spray cranberry juice. <laughs> <laughs> Hidden a little back. I'm like, you, <laughs> Well, just, you know what I'm saying? I hear you, no, I, I hear you. So I think this, this group would also love to hear about your social media strategy. My non-existent social media strategy. <laughs> What's the deal with social media? Do you think you need it? Well, obviously I don't because <laughs> I don't use it. And I have a very, very full 
restaurant. But I also grew up without a television mm. and felt bereft as a child that mm. I couldn't talk at school about all the things that people were talking about. Mm. So I am in fact left out of a lot of water cooler conversation, mm -hmm. I think you call that. And I don't, like I'm sometimes jealous when everybody knows about like a former employee and they had their baby, I'm like, well, I nursed that guy for four years on the line, and why don't I know that he had a baby? But then I actually start to know who my real people are because mm. they text me and they're like, I had a baby, and I want you to know that I had a baby. And so I can only handle my relationships with the, I don't know, what do I have, 200, 300 people that I really love and right. care about most, and um, I can barely keep up with them. So I'm not very interested in 10 million people who love me or yeah. want to hear what I have to say. I'm also terrible, as you can tell, we're probably going way over time, at um, the tidbit. Like, I need a big format. I really <laughs> not a, I want to talk in long paragraphs. And you so need the, more of like a buffet style They're like 129 carry. I'm like, this sucks for me. I'm like, I can't do it, can't do it. <laughs> All right, well, our last formal question, and we'll see if there's any from the group, but uh, the last formal question is, apart from Prune, what is your favorite restaurant in New York? Oh. I'm just gonna say that the East Village is killing it these days. I mean, I am so glad, and it has frankly been a long time coming, mm. counter uh, evidently, if that's the right word. Mm. Like, a lot of restaurants, a ton of restaurants in the East Village, but it's a lot of like fake good food. Like they have the faux brick and the whitewash and the silver tip light bulb and the cured meats and all the right ingredients on the menu. It's just like, bleh, so, <laughs> someone's just faking it. Right. It's not real. They have just picked and mm. um, cherry picked the things that they've seen around and they're like a bad mimeograph mm. um, to use an archaic. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no one even knows what mimeograph is anymore, but you know what I mean. Um, a There's faded, like eight of us that do it. Faded, and, and we're like, mimeograph. <laughs> yeah. And we used to do that, right? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, old people. <laughs> Everybody who's like 30 and under is like, what the F? I know, what? With the machine and the crank and the blue ink. But anyway, it is like, in my neighborhood now, you can go to um, Bobby Flay's mm. restaurant. Gato is fantastic. Mm. Um, Vix is incredible. Empeon, um, Estella. It's, I mean, it's just sort of um, an embarrassment. So I don't have to leave a five block radius and I can eat very, very well. Excellent. All right, well, who's got, uh, first of all, a round of applause. I mean, it's not easy. It's not easy answering these expert questions, but uh, do, if you guys have any questions. I mean, I mean, the lawyers, I hope, are here for the McDonald's one. I was like, oh my God. It was perfect, it was perfect. We have, uh, we have a mic to pass around for questions. I'll get it started, uh, and then we'll encourage the audience to ask questions. But. Uh, what would be your advice for someone who wants to start a restaurant or someone who's creative and it's kind of a pseudo chef or food preparer that's always had a passion? Because uh, we hear it a lot in the agency and then just in our circles, you know, when I retire, I want to open a restaurant or a bar or yeah, I mean, have my a concept. What, what would be your thoughts? Don't do it. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I really, Next I say question. it every day. Don't ever open a restaurant, um, especially if you love cooking. <laughs> Because it has nothing, nothing, and I'm not being mm. funny or humorous or entertaining, it has nothing to do with cooking. It is the hardest work, the most repetitive work, the most recurring work. It is like a Three Stooges routine that is not funny. <laughs> and you bend down to pick up the nail and you get hit in the back of the head with the two by four, and you turn around and see the two by four in the freaking water spouts you in the eye, and it's literally like that, and I hope you can see my tone just got very low. <laughs> like, don't open a freaking restaurant if you like to cook. If you love to work your brains out and worry and organize chaos and take care of a lot of people all the time, if you're manic and um, thorough and compulsive and a little bit OCD, oh my God, I can't wait to come to your restaurant. <laughs> Very good. You can have my job at that as well. Same, same, same profile. What else? It's not every day you get to talk to a genius. Come on, nothing. No. And you don't even have to pass the microphone. I'll repeat your question. This is not my first. So it's fine. Yeah. Um, have you made any big mistakes since you opened Prune, and what did you learn from 
Have I made any very big mistakes since I opened Prune, and what did I learn from that? Um, I have made some mistakes. One um, that stands out, or you know, for the sake of party question game here, um, <laughs> I had a long period of waffling about my own vision and my own um, knowing what I knew to be true, and I let myself be talked out of it mm. by others, and in particular, there was a vendor who called and said, I have these ducks. Oh, you, you know who uses these ducks? Danielle. Um, every big chef in the world was using the duck, and it feeds on the droppings of the bagels from Barney Greengrass, or I don't know what. <laughs> and I was like, okay, the duck, bring me a few. And he brought the duck, and I kept cooking it and kept eating it and thinking, this is so fucking chewy. <laughs> it's so tough. What is up with this duck? I can't, it's not, it's not delicious to me and it's not tender. And the kids, by whom I mean the line cooks, the 23-year-old line cooks who are like, oh, you're gonna get the duck from the farm, from the guy who puts the feed? <laughs> and I'm like, okay, okay. Anyway, I did it and you know who came for dinner? <laughs> like the freaking reviewer from the New York Times and it shows up in the fucking print. A week later, I was like, I've known about that duck since we've run it, and why did I? But it was actually a brilliant moment of like paying tuition. I, mm. It was such a good education. I've never done it since. It's like, oh, young cook, you want to work with the sous vide, and you want to fuck around with the um, nitrogen blasting. I'm like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> on your own time, in your own <laughs> restaurant, but I know it tastes good, and I know how I want to cook, and I know what ingredients are right for me in this place. <sighs> Thank you. Thank you for letting me get that off my chest. <laughs> you were fucked by the duck. <laughs> Hi. Thank you very much. What do you think about composting? Love it. We do it. I mean, I think we do it. We have a... <laughs> we have an incredible, ridiculous <laughs> system of five different streams of garbage that go out of the restaurant and I pay for the extra truck, and I'm fastidious and a little kooks, you know, as I'm like going through the clear bags, I'm like, who put a goddamn thing in the hood? And then I'm never quite sure, because it's like, well, now two trucks came, and they have to go 200 miles up to the fill, and did I do anything good? And sometimes, you know, late at night, you see that truck pull up, and you're like, did they just put all my beautifully sorted into one truck, <laughs> and you're just like, what's going on? So it's a little, um, I do it because I believe in it, and I am just um, have faith that they're doing their part on their end. Hi. Anthony Bourdain had a lot of nice things to say about your book. And um, just curious, first, have you read Kitchen Confidential, and if so, what do you think about that? And really, the question is, what do you think about this whole celebrity chef phenomenon? And, you know, the Food Network no longer talking about uh, how to make food, but rather contests about food and random garbage about food. Uh, what, what are your thoughts on the whole thing? And if your thoughts are positive, I apologize for the garbage. <laughs> I think Anthony Bourdain wrote the National Anthem and the Pledge of Allegiance combined in one of every line cook in every country across the universe in Kitchen Confidential. It's one of the best mm. books ever written to our tribe. And I think he missed a lot. And he, because he took a certain stance and a certain position, and it's very rock and roll, having sex in the dry goods room, snorting the coat, which is in fact his experience. And there's so much more um, finesse and quietness um, and boredom and tedium, frankly, <laughs> in a restaurant kitchen that I aimed to capture here. <laughs> in the but there's plenty of sex and drugs and um, grand larceny in here, too, so, you know. <laughs> um, and I think the celebrity chef is very troubling for um, all of us who, you know, still haul out the mats at the end of the night. It creates an illusion for the new um, group of labor coming in that you are gonna be cooking in a French manicure and a cashmere sweater set <laughs> with your hair down. Um, however, I don't 
revile it or rail against it. It's taken me a long time to understand the nuance of language that the word chef is as fluid as the word writer, another one that I get uptight about. <laughs> so I meet people in the restaurant and they'll say like, oh, my husband's a chef. And you're like, oh my God, where? Like, no, 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 at home, at home. It's like, <laughs> okay, that's not a chef. Or, um, so it's a real um, talent and you should try it sometime to be a TV celebrity chef to get the food cooked on time, have your hair look right, have something to say without sputtering out. <laughs> um, and I have actually quite a lot of respect for it. It's not something I want to do. And I don't want to participate in the competitive world either. It's not that fun for me. It's um, hard enough to just cook regular <laughs> and well, <laughs> let alone like under the duress of 15 minutes and five dishes in a shower stall in a dorm room. I'm just like, <laughs> wow, I mean, that's a different skill set. So I admire that one also. And there are some people who are really into it, like a Faulkner, Elizabeth Faulkner is a really good friend. She played soccer for like 40 years. And like this is a marriage of her most favorite things on earth, cooking and competing. And she's like, this is my jam. <laughs> and I get that. So it's just a question of like language. It's like, um, oh, yeah, I, I wrote a book or I wrote. And do you know what I mean? Like. Are you a sports writer? Do you write novels? Do you write copy? Do you cook on television? So have I said anything? Just it's, I think it's to relax a little bit and let everyone be what they do or, and not rail against it and not have such henny-penny defensiveness like, my industry's going down the tubes because there are celebrity chefs. It's not true. There's always going to be a tribe like me who want to haul out the mats at the end of the night, I hope. For, $15 an hour. <laughs> We're hiring, if anyone wants to come. So what's the chance of a prune Vegas? <laughs> it's funny. That is the one place that I would go. I just That's think genius. that would be hilarious to do a 30-seat nonprofit prune behind the big casino, probably behind New York, New York, right? Like, how, next to the tattoo parlor? Anyway, not happening, but wouldn't that be funny? <laughs> but can you imagine the premium pricing you could get? I mean, but I wouldn't, because I it's not know. me. So it would just be like prune be off brand. in Vegas. <laughs> but I mean, come on, the strippers and the gambling. I don't want to too. open another restaurant. I have, two, I, have a, I have one restaurant, which, you know, this question comes up a lot. How many restaurants is too many for mm -hmm. any proprietor? And my answer is always like, one, one is too many. It's already impossible to run one. And I'm kind of not kidding. They're hard to staff. They're hard mm. to pay attention to um, and keep your quality very high. But I also have two children that I wouldn't mind knowing. And they're still at young enough ages that I think they're vulnerable to me not being around. They're 9 and 11. And I write books. And that, I mean, I write articles or I write books. And I'm like, for me, that is like just about a full day. And I would probably be made of ash mm. and bad talcum powder if <laughs> I had anything else to do besides that. I think, I mean, God, let's stop it there. That's enough for a day. Well, I think we're going to stop it here. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Anyway, can't thank you enough. That was, that was great. It's, again, it's a rare treat to have uh, somebody, like a real creative spirit, who's done, you know, doing brilliant things in the world. So Thanks thank you for what you're contributing, and thank you for being here. Thank you for listening to the Disruptor Series podcast, Adweek's Agency Podcast of the Year. Craving more disruption? Visit us at tbwashydayny.com.